As you're taking your seats, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 26. We're going through the book of Acts, and we're, we're going through a mini-series that we've entitled Taking the Stand. And we've entitled that for a very specific reason, because as we're going through the book of Acts, right now, quite literally, the Apostle Paul is taking the stand for Jesus Christ. He's on trial much in the same way that Jesus Christ was on trial. He's standing and making a defense for what he believes and what he knows to be right and true. He's making a defense for the gospel and for Jesus Christ. And what's so fascinating is that as we see even in this text this morning that when you take a stand for Jesus Christ, it often comes at a great cost. The world looks at you and often believes, as Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, that what we believe is foolishness to the world. They think we're crazy for what we believe. They think we're out of our minds. And that's why it's imperative to embrace what I hope will be the driving kind of thrust of the message this morning. The call of the Christian life and the call to stand for Jesus must be done with unwavering commitment. There's so much that would hinder us from being faithful to taking the stand for Jesus and it requires of us an unwavering commitment in the late 1800s, there was a clergyman by the name of Bishop Wright who thought, as the rest of the world did, that it was impossible for man to fly. He thought it was crazy to think that human beings could fly. In fact, he said these words. He said, flight is reserved for the angels. And on December 17, 1903, his oldest son, Wilbur, took his seat in the first power-driven plane ever built and was airborne at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina for 12 seconds and 120 feet. It was the same for Christopher Columbus. People were so sure that this crazy explorer would sail off the end of the earth. The majority of the world believed that the earth was flat and it had kind of an end point. In fact, so much so that many of the coins in the 1400s carried this Latin inscription, ne plus ultra, which means this, no more beyond. And yet after 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the new coins read, plus ultra, more beyond. Throughout history, there have been those who took a stand for what they believed to be right. They took a risk. And regardless of what the world threw at them, regardless of the opposition they encountered, they stood their ground with unwavering commitment why? Why can you push forward? How can you push forward when all the world is watching, when all the world is listening, when all the world is waiting, and they're pushing back on you? How can you move forward with unwavering commitment? Like I said, these individuals knew that what they believed was right. And they believed they could offer the world the hope of something radically new, radically different, radically life-changing, and they refused to quit, and they refused to back down. Paul, the apostle, now stands in the very same position. He stands mighty in the Lord, speaking with remarkable optimism and passion and cheerfulness as he makes his defense for Jesus Christ. Though he stands, remember the scene, before the world, really, he stands before King Agrippa and all the elite of the world, really representing the world before him. He is unwavering in his commitment to what he knows matters most. And this is a lesson for us this morning as we look at this unwavering commitment in the Apostle Paul. I pray that our hearts would be filled with courage so that we might too live for Jesus Christ with unwavering commitment. Church, listen, we hold out the hope of something radically new. We hold out the hope of something radically different, and we hold out the hope of something radically life-changing. I want you to see this morning as we dive into God's word that we offer first, listen, the world. We offer to the world as we take a stand for Jesus the hope of a resurrected life. We offer the hope of a resurrected life. In fact, that's exactly why Paul is ultimately on trial. He's told us this again and again. Look at verse one with me. Let's get ourselves into God's word. It says this, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. 
He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Listen, Paul stands, remember he's been given the opportunity to make a defense before King Agrippa. Agrippa really is a representative head of the, the Jewish faith in, under Roman occupation. He knows the faith well, and Paul appeals to him. I love this. As, as we get into this, just, just catch the, the sense of Paul's heart. As he stands before Agrippa to make his defense, he appeals to Agrippa's knowledge of the truth of the Jewish faith. He says, I know that you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, just, just catch this. I beg you to listen to me patiently. Listen, in the heart of Paul, right out the get you need to know that Paul is not simply making a legal defense. He's not looking to just impart some head knowledge. Paul is going after the hearts of his audience. He desperately wants them to listen, to hear, to know, and to believe the truth that he has given his life to. And so he appeals like, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Hear what I have to say. Don't dismiss it. Give me, give me a chance to present to you the most radically life-altering truth you could possibly know. Verse four, he says this, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among many, or excuse me, among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time and if they are willing to testify, and according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. And here it is, here's the hope that he's presenting. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul begins in his defense by maybe establishing a layer of credibility before Agrippa. He knows Agrippa's familiar with the Jewish faith and the Jewish customs. He's well-versed in the Jewish scriptures. He knows the Old Testament well. And then he, he says, look, I, I was actually amongst my accusers. I was like them. I, I was radically trained in the law. I was a Pharisee. I was of the strictest party in our religious groups. And he does this because he, he wants Agrippa and all those who hear him to know that what he's saying is not going against the word of God. It's not going against the Old Testament that some of them claim to know and believe in. It actually flows right out of the Old Testament. And that's why he appeals to him on the grounds of the, the Jewish hope. All the Jews are waiting. They earnestly worship night and day. And they're waiting for this hope, this long-awaited hope. What is that hope? That there is a resurrection, that God raises the dead. Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not opposing the scriptures, I'm actually upholding the scriptures. All the Jews believed that there was going to be a Messiah who was gonna come and rule and reign forever. They believed in what 2 Samuel 7 speaks of when it comes to David and his throne, that there is going to be one who sits on the throne, a Messiah who comes, and he is going to conquer, he is going to rule and reign, he's going to establish Israel back to their place of prominence. Paul says, I believe the same thing. But, but I'm here to tell you that he is here. The Messiah has come. I have been proclaiming that hope. And the heart of that hope is seen in the resurrection. That's what you need to see here. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ validated the Old Testament promise of resurrection. And it proved that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. You see, how can a, a king live forever? How can one person rule forever? He must come to conquer man's greatest enemy, death. He's got to overcome that obstacle if he's going to reign forever. Now, I want us to think for a moment about why the resurrection is so vitally important in both Jewish and Christian theology. The resurrection is intended to teach us something about our past 
and the reality of, of, of the world and the universe, but it all, it's also intended to teach us something about our future and the hope that we can have. You see, it, it points us back because it reminds us that, that the very word, listen, resurrection, reminds us and, and teaches us that there's something wrong with the world. There's something that is dead that needs to be brought back to life. It's a staggering thought, and we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this, but did you know that when God created humanity, we were intended to live forever? We weren't supposed to die. Now, for, for our minds and in our finite you know, inability to process all of this, it's so hard to grasp that. We were created to live forever. There was not supposed to be death, and yet we're so steeped in a culture of death, we all understand the reality of death in our life. But when God created the universe, listen, it says that he created it good. God, like a master artist, he paints all of creation, this beautiful canvas of creation, and it is perfect, it is unblemished, and then we know with humanity and the fall into sin, mankind comes and takes a bucket of red paint and splashes it all across that canvas, staining, marring God's perfect creation. Sin, like paint that soaks into the canvas. Listen, sin has soaked into the very fabric of this universe. Our universe is broken. It is destroyed. It is cursed by sin. You see, sin entering the world meant that death entered the world. It is the consequence of sin. There is both physical death that now we experience and there is spiritual death defined as alienation from God, a separation from God. And you see, it was never meant to be that way. The resurrection reminds us that everything was supposed to be perfect and right. We were supposed to live in perfect harmony and relationship with God. We were never supposed to die. We were supposed to live and enjoy him forever and ever and ever. That was our original design. We know this, don't we? There is a sense in our hearts. This is why the author of Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, says that God has put eternity in our hearts. Every one of us has that deep down sense that life is not all there is, but our existence now cursed by sin. And the answer to this problem is seen in the resurrection. It reminds us that something is broken and needs to be fixed. It reminds us that there's something that is dead that needs to be brought back to life. And the resurrection teaches us that sin and death have now been overcome. There is victory over our great enemy. The hope that we have longed for, that was promised, can now be realized, and it is realized only in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. You know, I said this last week, and I think it's so important to remember. You see, we get so caught up living in the here and now. We believe so often that this life is all there is, or at least that's the way we live. But the resurrection tells us something about our future as well. It tells us, listen, that there's more to life than life, at least this life. And this is so, listen, we have to get our minds around this because this is so crucial to living on mission for Jesus Christ. If we believe that there's only this life and nothing comes after this, then it doesn't matter what you believe. But if you understand and believe that there is coming a future day where the dead will be raised to life, listen, and this is the, every person will be raised back to stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. This is a such a significant concept, listen. Every person will stand before Jesus Christ as the righteous judge. The only question is, what will your existence after this life look like for eternity? Will your existence be defined and characterized by light and life forever and ever and ever, or will it be characterized by death and darkness forever and ever and ever? Will it be characterized by everlasting joy in the presence of the Lord or will it be characterized by everlasting horror separated from the Lord? The resurrection tells us something about our past. We need to be fixed. We need to be brought to life. It tells us about our future, that there is something beyond this life. There is a hope for us. But it teaches us something as well about our present existence. In fact, the resurrection is intended by God to fuel the way we live this Christian life here and now. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is present, active, right now. We can have a living hope in this life. Where does that come from? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, there is a future aspect of the resurrection, but there is a present reality of the resurrection. The dead can be raised to life here and now. We can enjoy a taste of what it means to have purpose in Jesus Christ. Eternity, the concept of eternity drove Paul. He stands here with such unwavering commitment because he knows, and we we need to begin to see like Paul sees, to see like Jesus sees, that every person he comes across is a soul that will live forever. Their destiny is on the line, and this is, this is Paul's heart as he stands here and he pleads patiently with Agrippa. He knows that he speaks to someone who's gonna live forever, and he wants them to live in the presence of God. And loved ones, we need to embrace that reality in our lives because what we offer to the world is the hope of a resurrected life. We go out in this world and we look at the death that sin has caused. We look at the death of, of those around us. Though they're alive physically, they're so spiritually dead and lost. And we come to them and we say, listen, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we give you hope and life in him. Our hearts need to be stirred by these things. Listen, what was offered to you, you now have the great privilege of offering to the world. But for this resurrected life to be a reality for us, we must first know the hope of a redeemed life. And that's what we offer to the world. We offer a redeemed life. To put it another way, the resurrection makes possible the hope of redemption. Paul launches now into his personal testimony. Look at verse nine. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul expresses to Agrippa what we've seen so often throughout the book of Acts. This is the third time that Paul gives his personal testimony. You know, I think that teaches us something too. Paul was never afraid to use his personal testimony in his evangelistic efforts. He always talked about the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he saw his personal testimony as a bridge to connect people in their personal lives to the gospel. You see, there's some power in sharing your personal testimony and being able to go to people and say, listen, this is who I was before Christ. This is what I was doing. And Paul's testimony is so radical, isn't it? The conversion experience that he had is so incredibly drastic and radical. He moves from being a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. He hates Jesus. I mean, he's signing up. He's checking the box, voting to kill Christians. He's going to foreign cities to to imprison Christians. This is his life. And he says, look, I was like these Jews who are now persecuting me. I did what they did. Verse 12, he says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Here's the radical part. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. As Paul shares his testimony, he talks about how that one day he was walking on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden the Lord Jesus Christ shows up in blazing glory, brighter than the sun, blinding him. Him and his companions fall on their face and Paul says, as Jesus speaks to him, Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
But it's interesting, that's not all that he says. He, he says to Paul in this testimony of Paul is a very interesting phrase. He says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That phrase is really unique. We don't use that often, but really here's what it means. It describes the struggle of a beast of burden. Think about a, a horse or a mule that is being driven in a certain direction by its driver or rider. As a proverbial expression, it describes futile and detrimental resistance to a stronger power. Let me say that again. It's so important to understand this. Futile and detrimental resistance to a stronger power. Paul's, or God, Jesus says to Paul, Paul, you're like a stubborn mule. And, and the goat is what was used to, to push and to maybe prick or poke to try and get that mule to go in the right direction. He's like, Paul, I'm trying to get you on the right path, moving the right way. And you keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. The problem is, is you're fighting against someone who is much stronger than you, Paul. You're fighting against someone who has more power than you. You're fighting against the one who has control over your very heart and can change you in an instant. You know, every testimony, when you boil it down, really is saying the same thing. At the very heart of every Christian testimony, there is resistance, rejection, and rebellion that characterizes the old person. That pre-Christ person was filled with resistance to Jesus, filled with rejection of Jesus and rebellion against Jesus. You see, it just manifests itself in different ways, that's all. Some of our rebellion is more passive and quiet, a little bit more apathetic and complacent. It's not as overt as some other forms of, of that manifestation of that pride and resistance. Some of us have been willful and stubborn in rejecting Jesus. Some of us have shaken our fist violently in the face of God. Paul is confronted on his stubborn rebellion by Jesus Christ himself. And by the way, that's how all conversion happens. You have to be confronted in your sin. It has to be addressed, it has to be brought to light that you are actually living in rebellion to God. And this is staggering for Paul who thinks he's serving the Lord, who thinks he's worshiping God, who thinks somehow he's doing what is right and pleasing to God. You'll notice verse 16 and 18, excuse 16 and 17. He says, but rise, you say, what, what, what happened when he was confronted? Jesus addresses his rebellion, but then he calls him away from his rebellion. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness. Paul, you're gonna be used in a different way. You're gonna be used by me. You're gonna be used no longer as a persecutor of the Christian faith, but as a proclaimer of the Christian faith. This is really the heart of Paul's plea to Agrippa. You see, he stands there with unwavering commitment because he knows that he is now a servant to his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his servant has given him a very clear and specific task. He no longer lives for himself. He no longer follows the ways of this world or the passions of his own flesh. He now submits himself entirely to the will of God for him in Jesus Christ. This is the call for every Christian. It is the bow to the knee to Jesus and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God was calling Paul in this very moment in his testimony out of his resistance, out of his rejection, and out of his rebe rebellion to become a representative of Jesus Christ. And what Paul would offer to others was in this moment being offered to him, and this is so crucial. Listen, the reason we take a stand for Jesus and the reason we offer this hope to the world is because we realize that we were the ones who had it offered to us in Jesus Christ first. And if this doesn't stir your heart, listen, you will not be motivated to evangelize anyone until you realize what you have in the gospel and until you come back to it repeatedly and realize the grace that is given to you, that God would come to you and offer you the hope of a resurrected life and a redeemed life and that that would grab a hold of you and say, if God has given this to me, how could I not give it to somebody else? If you've experienced the reality of a redeemed life, Christians, please hear this. You are now called to offer the hope of a redeemed life to those around you. 
You know, redemption is such an important, theologically rich word for Christians. It means simply this, deliverance by purchase. And that's what's happened for all of us who are in Christ. Imagine, listen, this was the scene before you were in Christ. You were in debt up to your eyeballs. I mean, humanly speaking, you had an insurmountable debt. It could not be repaid. And you just kept sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into that debt. And the one to whom you owed that debt looked at you and saw you and had mercy on you and came and relieved you from that debt. The one to whom that debt was owed comes along and pays for it all. But you have to see this, you know, it's so, so in all other religions, there's ways of thinking about how God can deal with sin. I had a conversation with a Muslim very recently, and we were talking about why the gospel is necessary, why Jesus had to die. And, and here's what he couldn't get his mind around. Why can't God just forgive sin? You know, you know what I mean? Like, why can't God just wink at sin? Like, ah, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. We'll sweep it under the rug. No problem. Why can't God just do that? And the simple answer is this. Listen, because God is a just God, sin cannot just be forgiven. There is a cost to sin. It must be paid for. If God is going to be a just judge, someone has to pay for the crime of sin. The answer is only found in two places. Either it's you're going to pay for it for all of eternity because you have sinned against an eternally worthy God. Or you can have an eternally worthy sacrifice take your place and his name is Jesus Christ. And by punishing Jesus, listen, God remains just. But he also becomes merciful. And he offers us something that we don't deserve. He offers us forgiveness of sins. And it's such a a powerful image to think of your debts, listen, being paid because in the gospel, this is what he gets at. Listen, Listen to verse 18. Here's what he says to open. He's sending you to proclaim this message, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That verse is so loaded with such awesome gospel truth that if you're in Christ this morning, it should thrill your heart. This is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Your debts have been done away with. They've been paid in full. Let me remind you of what Paul says in Colossians chapter two. He says, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus takes all of your debt, that insurmountable debt, and he nails it to the cross on Jesus Christ. And he comes to you and he says, your debt is canceled, it's been paid, I've paid it all in full. And then what he does is he takes your account and he tops it up to overflowing with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel good news. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He just unleashes verse 18 on Agrippa and on this audience of the elite of the world. The verse that really depicts this picture of redemption. We are purchased and we are given all of this in Jesus Christ. We are moved, listen, because of the redemption of Jesus Christ from blindness to sight, from darkness to light, from under the power of Satan to under the power of God, our sins completely forgiven, all of Christ's righteousness for us. That's the sanctification there. And a place amongst God's people. See, how do I get this? I mean, what can I do to get this? He says it so clearly, only by faith in me. It's faith in Jesus. There is no other way to be purchased and to have redemption. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ that you can receive the forgiveness of your sins. And when you are amazed that your life is redeemed, You long to see others redeemed for Jesus Christ and for his glory. You long to see them experiencing what you experience. See, we offer the hope of a redeemed life, and that means that we're now able to offer the hope of a reconciled life. 
we come and we offer the world as we stand for Jesus, the hope of a resurrected life, the hope of a redeemed life, but that makes possible this picture, the hope of a reconciled life. Paul says that he did what God told him to do. You'll notice that starting in verse 19, he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul expresses to Agrippa and the surrounding audience that he had to be obedient to the heavenly vision. Jesus confronts him. He turns and he responds. And I love the picture that we saw in verse 18, this picture, a place among those who are sanctified. And that, that, I just want to kind of drill down on that for a minute because that is a picture of reconciliation. We are not only redeemed and purchased, saved from our sins, we are given a seat at the king's table. We are brought into God's family. We are brought into a right relationship with God. And Paul expresses that really as he says that he was obedient to God. He, he knew that now he functioned in a right, a godly relationship, a healthy relationship with God. He's no longer an enemy. He's been made a servant, a friend. Paul has been completely reconciled to God. All the sin that separated him was dealt with completely, and now he goes around calling others to experience that same kind of reconciliation, to live the way we were intended to live in that right relationship with the God and creator of this universe. Verse 20 is really a a hinge verse in this section. Specifically, the second half, you'll notice what he goes around proclaiming. Remember this concept of of faith in Jesus. You say, what does that look like? Well, here's what faith looks like expressed. It, It is repentance, turning to God, and then flowing from that, performing deeds in keeping with our repentance. You know, we talk about repentance a lot, and, and, uh, and I think it's important that we do so. Repentance is at the heart of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and living as a follower of Jesus Christ. Literally, the word means to be walking in one direction and to turn a 180 and go in an entirely different direction. Paul expresses this, look, he says that he calls them to repent and turn to God. The implication, again, remember, is that they are not currently reconciled to God. They are alienated from God. They are far from God, but it's worse than that. You know, I've used the picture, uh, that word picture of walking and turning, and, and uh, I want to maybe kind of flesh this picture out a little bit more, and I want to add a component to it that I think is really important. So I, I wanted to pick the, the most Christ-like person I could find to represent Jesus for us, so I chose uh, one of our elders, Matt. It's, uh, it's a close, close second to Jesus. So, um, <laughs> you see, when we are not reconciled to God, when we're alienated from God, it's not just that we're walking in the opposite direction from God. I, I want you to have in your mind this picture of what's actually taking place, and especially as God is calling people to himself. You know that picture of, of Paul kicking against the goads, of resisting uh, Jesus? You know, it's just imagine, here's, here we are in our sin, walking in our lives, and God is trying to get our attention by confronting us with the reality of Jesus Christ. So we're walking our own way, in our own desires, doing our own thing, thinking we're in control of our own destiny, and God puts Jesus right in front of us, and, and we try and get around, and you know, kind of like Balaam and his donkey, you know, every time we try, we try to go another way, God's like, no, you're not going, and we're, we're pushing hard, Matt's, he's a big guy, so uh, this is dangerous territory. You know, we're, we're pushing against Jesus, saying, no, I don't want you, I'm resisting you, I'm rejecting you, we're kicking against the goads, but here's the awesome thing, in repentance, we come face to face with Jesus, we not only are confronted with the reality of who God is in Jesus Christ, which makes us turn and walk in the other direction, God's way toward God. Here's the awesome thing. In reconciliation, Jesus walks with us. This, this is so key. You the heart of the Christian faith is, is forgiveness of sins and reconciled to God. It's relationship. Thanks, man. 
This is so crucial to your understanding and appreciation of the gospel that you now, as you live the Christian life and you walk faithfully towards God in repentance, turning from your sins and walking in righteousness, it's so helpful to understand, you do not do this alone. You actually walk with Jesus Christ and you walk with the power of the spirit of God that dwells within you. That's the, that is just a glimpse of the picture of reconciliation that we have. And you know, Paul, he actually expresses this here. I wonder if you caught this in verse 22. He says, to this day, I have had the help, do you catch this, that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. Don't you see, he's like, I have been reconciled to God and I stand for Jesus Christ with unwavering commitment. But get this, I don't stand alone. Jesus Christ helps me in my weakness. He stands with me. We stand for Jesus We speak of Jesus, we are empowered by Jesus. This picture of reconciliation is so sweet and I hope this morning your heart is thrilled by the fact that you know the God of this universe and you can walk in relationship with him. I love that Paul in verse 22 and 23 talks about that he he now goes to small and great. Don't you love that picture? He goes to small and great to tell them all that the prophets said, again, that what Moses said was gonna come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Listen, we walk out like Paul into a dark world and we call people into the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ where they can know freedom in the light of the gospel. Paul knows what he has been given in the gospel the great privilege of being in relationship to the God of this universe, and now he is compelled by that to go out into the world. In fact, I wonder if your mind has been thinking a little bit of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter five, listen to what Paul says. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the heart of Paul? He wants us to be a people who realize that we are called like him to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ where we implore people, we plead with people. Why? Because eternity is at stake for every single human being. There is no time to waste. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. And so with passion and with zeal and with love bursting in our hearts, for what God has done for us in reconciling us, we go to the world and we say, please be reconciled to God. Come through Jesus Christ, let him bear your sin, take his righteousness for yourself so you can stand right before the God of this universe. And the heart of Paul, listen, is so moved with passion for the lost, it needs to convict us and it needs to compel us to be filled with the same kind of compassion and conviction to see lost people saved. This is our calling, church. Ambassadors of Christ, be reconciled to God. Some of you in here, you're not reconciled to God. And you need to hear, you need to hear the words of the Apostle Paul imploring you. You need to hear the words of Jesus Christ confronting you and calling out to you. And you need to hear the same words that Paul heard. Why are you kicking against the goads? Why won't you break? Why won't you surrender your life? Why won't you humble yourself before the Lord? Why won't you be reconciled to God? And I need to plead with you this morning. Please, please, please don't go another second. Don't get another, go, go another moment without falling on your face before God and begging for forgiveness of your sins and praising him for the righteousness that you can have in Jesus Christ. Please be reconciled to God. Paul, longs to see people come from light or darkness to light. And that's because he longs to offer the world the hope of a reclaimed life. He offers to the world the hope of a reclaimed life. Paul here has been defending the gospel. 
sharing and pouring out his heart. You have to see that Paul was not afraid. He was not cold and clinical in his delivery. He was passionate and zealous for the things of Jesus Christ, the longing to see people saved. And it says in verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, now now you just have to picture the scene. Remember, Paul has been marched into this arena. Right? This is a spectacle. There's pomp and circumstance. He's standing before King Agrippa. He's standing before the rulers, the governors, the military elite. He's standing all of these big wings okay? All the power, all of the position, all the prestige, all there. And little Paul has been here in chains, bound, defending the faith of Jesus Christ. And finally, someone's had enough. Festus looks at Paul and he says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. We kind of get that last part there, right? Isn't it funny how the smartest people in the world seem to be the craziest? The only problem here is that Paul is not out of his mind in any way. He's never been more right about anything in the universe. Festus, the skeptic and the mocker, doesn't see the beauty of the gospel. He can't wrap his mind around it. Verse 25 says, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind. I love how Paul says this, most excellent Festus but I am speaking true and rational words. Listen, this is so important to grasp as well. Paul in making his defense for the faith, we need to get this. This is so helpful. Anytime you're arguing with somebody or defending the faith against somebody or you know, having a discussion about different religions and worldviews, you have to understand what Paul understands. We have the truth on our side. The Christian faith is the most rational faith there is. It makes more sense out of our existence, out of the universe than any other faith out there, okay? You have the rational faith and truth on your side. That's good because we don't have a blind faith that is built upon irrationality. A lot of people will look at us and say, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. But there is a rational argument that Paul lays out to show why sin must be dealt with in this way, how we can have salvation only through Jesus Christ. Verse 26 says, for the king knows about these things and to him I speak Boldly. Now, this is so fascinating. Here is Paul surrounded by all of these people. We don't know how large the audience is, but it's guaranteed that it's big. But Paul, in this moment, listen, he kind of lets the audience fall to the side and he zeroes his focus in on one individual who's sitting right there. He focuses right in on King Agrippa. He says, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner, right? All that had happened to Jesus Christ was not done in a corner. All the world was beginning to know about this guy, Jesus, about his death, and about his apparent resurrection. And then Paul does something fascinating. He confronts King Agrippa so specifically in the midst of this crowd. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Listen, this is so instructive for us. There is a time to be general with the gospel, to put it out there before people. But listen, I think we need to learn how to be perceptive like Paul. See, in the moment, you, you can begin, you ever been there where you're talking to people about the gospel and all of a sudden you begin to, something is happening in one of those person's hearts. You, you know, I have stood here and preached and watched people be like Festus, turn their face away and not care a lick about the gospel, thinking this is crazy. I've seen it tons of times. But I have seen people, listen, I have seen people who walked in here, uh, maybe on the, uh, on the, in the place of questioning, seeking answers, who sit there with their eyes wide, leaning in, listening intently, spirit beginning to move in their hearts, mind beginning to turn about what this all means, and seeing the truth and the beauty of the gospel and the implications for their life if they were to embrace this. And Paul sees this happening in the moment with Agrippa. I don't know what the cues were, I don't know how it all unfolded, but Paul's zero in so quickly on Agrippa and he points to the reality that Agrippa knows this truth. He appeals to him. You know what the prophet said. You believe what the prophet said. You believe what I'm saying, don't you? Now Agrippa is in a precarious position. He's the big wig. He's the top dog and Paul has just kind of put him on the, the screen for everybody to now look at. He's confronted him in front of all of his subjects. 
And he's there, he's, he's thinking, he, he, there's a sense in which he's starting to believe some of this stuff, but at the same time, he's looking around and he realizes that if he confesses Jesus as Lord and Master, this is going to be the end for him. Agrippa looks at Paul, and he says to him, verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I love Paul's response. Look at this. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. He's saying, are you kidding me? I'll take whatever time you'll give me. And if you give me a short time or a long time, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that over time, whether it's short or long, I'm going to persuade you and anybody else who's in earshot, everybody. I want all the world, right, big or small, short or long time to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm giving my life to this. Such unwavering commitment. Paul. Paul offers something that is so staggering. He offers to Agrippa and to all those who hear the hope of a reclaimed life. That is this, and listen, that is this, a life that is given over to the one who truly has a claim on us. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our savior. But for him to reclaim what is rightfully his, he requires that we give up our claim to be in control of our lives. You cannot be, like, this is, do you, you think you can persuade me to be a Christian, a Christ follower? You think you can persuade me to surrender my life and call this one master and Lord, and for me, me, King Agrippa, to surrender myself to this? Yes. Yes. That is what it means to be a Christian. It is to be someone who has had their life reclaimed by the rightful authority, not only of all humanity, listen, but all of the universe. A life that is now brought into submission and surrender to the master. And then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, here's, here's the irony here. Paul says, look, I want all the world to be as I am, to be a, a follower of Christ, to know him as Lord and Master, and to live for him and for him alone. And I long for everybody to experience that except for these chains. But the irony here is this, that while Paul may have physical chains on his arms, he may be shackled in front of the world. Listen, he has been set free in Jesus Christ from the power of sin and the power of death. And he longs, listen, regardless of those physical chains, he longs for all the world to be set free just like him. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what we are called to give our lives to. Whether short or long, small and great, that all might become as we are Christians, Christ followers, those who are reclaimed by their master, who experience true freedom from the slavery of sin. I want you to think of this audience just for a minute. They all went their separate ways, but before that, listen, somebody had come along and invited them to be a part of this audience. Somebody come along and said, hey, you got to hear this guy, Paul, and, and what he has to say. All the Jews are all uh, riled up about this guy. He's, he's claiming some crazy message. Come and hear this guy speak. We're going to have him here, and there's gonna be a, it's going to be a really big deal. Each one was invited by someone to come and hear Paul speak. Who knows whose heart was gripped in this meeting by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether they were skeptics like Felix or seekers like Agrippa, each one needed desperately to be offered the hope of new life in Jesus Christ. And the apostle Paul was willing to stand before the world, before this massive audience of the world's greatest and declare the only hope that could be found in Jesus Christ. I just want you to picture that scene and I want you to think about this upcoming weekend. 
Easter weekend is one of the two holidays of the year where I think statistics say something around 80% of people will come to a, a service if they're asked or invited. 80%. That is where there's relationship generally. This weekend, I wonder how many would be willing to be a part of an audience to come hear the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ. How many people in your life around you are waiting to be asked, are willing maybe to even be persuaded, and are wanting to have something that you have to offer? Here's my appeal to you today. With this coming weekend, with the invites that you've been given, with the relationships that you have, whether in your neighborhood, your family, your workplace, wherever they are, if you're just going to go out on the streets and talk to people about Jesus, listen, whatever you do, let's make sure that we give people a chance to be part of an audience to hear all about Jesus Christ. Let's step out in faith with unwavering commitment so that many can hear, and perhaps, by the grace of God, many will come to know the life-changing hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Paul has seen this hope in his own life. He knows the gospel intimately. He's compelled by the gospel. He knows the God who loves him deeply, who's been merciful to him. He knows how great this God is. He's seen his beauty and his power in the gospel itself. And his commitment, listen, flows from his great love and adoration of God for who God is and what God has done for him. He sees the gospel and he sees that the gospel screams that our God is great. Our gospel is gracious. He's so merciful. He offers hope to the world. And Paul longs for the gospel to go forward with life-giving power. This is why God has given him life. This is why he exists on the face of the planet. And church, we need to see, this is why we exist in Christ. God has called us to the same purpose. He has given us the same provisions. And it, may be our, it ought to be our goal to go out into this world so that they may hear the life-giving hope of Jesus and one day that they might shout his praise. As we close, I want to invite you to bow your heads. And I want to invite you to pray to God for yourself, for your own heart, and ask that you would be gripped by God's grace in your life, that you would treasure the gospel, that in your heart you'd be so thrilled and so thankful for what God has done that your heart leaps. Father, we pray that we would receive the gift of the gospel with continual gratitude and thankfulness. God, in the gospel, we see how great you are. God, we see that you have given to us a resurrected life. You have given us a redeemed life. Lord, you've given us a reconciled life. And Father, you have given us a reclaimed life. God, we want to say that you are great and worthy to be praised, and yet, Lord, we want to be used by you in greater ways. We want all the world to see how great our God is. We want all the world to declare that from their hearts and from their lips. So, God, would you, by your grace and by your power, give us strength, give us courage, Lord, to take the stand for Jesus and to go out into this world with unwavering commitment. We have so much at stake, and we have so much to offer. God, help us in this pursuit, we pray. May we do it for the good of those around us who are lost and dead, and may we do it for the honor and glory of the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.